Hi everyone, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, aka Menners, and I'm absolutely jubilant after Australia went 1-0 up in the Ashes, beating England by 10 wickets at the Gabba, led by their skipper who put in a man-of-the-match performance with 141 not out in the first innings. Stellar stuff, and to go through it all this week, we have three great guests. To start things off, we have the Suns cricket writer, John Etheridge, for the English point of view. Then we have a very special guest, ex-test fast bowler, Jeff Lawson, joins me for a good chat. And then to round things out, we have the Courier Mail sports columnist, Mike Coleman, to talk all things cricket. All right, let's get into it and talk to John Etheridge from The Sun for his view of England's crushing defeat in the first test at the Gabba. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, how are you going after the first test defeat? I'm a little bit um, downbeat, it has to be said. I mean, the performance on the field was okay for the first three days as far as the problems are concerned. They sort of competed well with Australia and had good chances actually to seize the initiative but weren't quite able to take them. But then on day four, it all fell apart rather disappointingly. And, of course, the final result was a 10-wicket victory, which is a crushing win in anybody's language for Australia. Then, of course, we have the off-the-field stuff with the, the Johnny Bairstow headbutt uh, riddle, which is one of the more bizarre incidents I've come across covering England. Well, it's quite funny because when I last had you on the podcast, I made a joke about another English star being embroiled in a, a late-night controversy, and it's come to fruition. It seems, though, like a pretty clever ploy by David Warner and some of the players in the Aussie team to put Bairstow off his game. Yeah, but it, and it probably worked because he was out in the second inning sort of uppercutting a ball down to third man straight into the fielder's hands, whether he hadn't uh, seen the fielder there or whether he was just distracted by the on-field chats, we don't quite know. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, what, what appeared to happen is that um, David Warner and maybe one or two other players were talking about headbutts on the field. This was heard by some people on the stump mic, which was turned up on quite a high volume and inquiries were made and, uh, and it transpired that this incident had taken place four weeks earlier in a, in a nightclub or in a bar in, in Perth. Yeah, it's a strange one. I think, though, it, I've seen guys be a bit exuberant after a couple of cold cold ales, perhaps, and, and do a little headbutt. Is it something that's part of the English culture up north? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think most people would expect to greet a stranger with a, with a, with a handshake or, or a hug, as uh, Cameron Bankoff said in his rather hilarious press comments after the match at... Uh, it's a bit of a rugby thing, I think, and um, you might notice that I think from time to time when players score a try, they sort of nudge heads and touch heads as a form of celebration. But that's something you do with your mates, not with a complete stranger. I mean, what had happened if um, Cameron Bancroft had, had moved at the wrong moment and maybe been caught on the, on the nose or something like that? I, I don't think it was very particularly hard, uh, but it was just a slightly bizarre thing to do being introduced to somebody for the first time. Yeah, probably some social faux pas rather than some more sinister attempt there by Bairstow. But there has been a result of this. So the English bosses have imposed a midnight curfew on the players for the rest of the Ashes tour. Are there question marks over the way Trevor Bayliss and the management are controlling the behaviour of this team? Well, Trevor Bayliss has always believed in a sort of relaxed atmosphere around the dressing room. He likes to treat players like adults and hope they'll respond accordingly and, and, uh, and be sensible. But, uh, you know, you're absolutely right about the, the, the midnight curfew that's been imposed by Trevor Bayliss and Andrew Strauss, the team director. 
And um, they're pretty unhappy. I mean, Trevor Bayliss could barely conceal his, his fury at his press conference after the game. Uh, and, you know, he was just saying you know, that England players were making dumb decisions and that sort of stuff. But certainly from, from now on, there's a blanket ban. Any player who's not back in his hotel room by midnight faces disciplinary punishment. Pre- previously, they could go out after midnight uh, on certain days. That was obviously not during a game or leading up to a game, but maybe after a match or when they've won or that sort of stuff. They can go out and have a few beers and stay out beyond midnight, but uh, as long as they had permission from the management and the security people were aware of what was going on. But now, midnight or bust, that's it. You've got to be in your room by, by midnight, and if you're not, um, you're going to have the book thrown at you. Uh, do you think that's the right way to go? Well, I, I think it's probably unavoidable. It's a shame in a way, and I, I don't think every player will be happy about it because you know they're suffering the consequences of... Well, the actions of probably two players, Ben Stokes previously. I mean, all this has come up really because of the Ben Stokes business. But for that, you know, the, the, the behaviour off the field of the players wouldn't be under the microscope in the way that it is now. So, yeah, some of the players aren't happy about it, but I guess it's a sort of unavoidable consequence. They, they've had a few warnings. I mean, the amazing thing was that they had a, a team meeting just before they uh, left the flight from London to, to Perth. And, and they, in that meeting, they were warned about the dangers and pitfalls of, um, of going out late in Australia. On, and then on the very first night, sometime after midnight, in the early hours, Johnny Bairstow headbutts somebody he's never met before. OK, in jest, it was a playful thing, but, but it was a slightly strange uh, action. And you'd have to say, pretty unwise, bearing in mind the warnings they'd had in the wake of the Stokes business. It's funny, because I think when the incident happened, I mean, Bancroft wasn't even sort of really on the radar for the Aussie Test team, or it was just around the fringes, so it's really come back to haunt Johnny Bairstow. But now, before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions about the Australian team, because this is the first time you've seen them up close on this tour. What are your impressions of the three-pronged pace attack of Cummins, Stark and Hazelwood, and did they live up to the billing? Yeah, I think they bowled well. I think they bowled better and better as the match went on and with more and more hostility. That, that might have something to do with the pitch, uh, which perhaps quickened up just a little bit as the game wore on. But uh, the way they attacked the England tail, you know, numbers 9, 10 and, and 11, was pretty intimidating. And, uh, you know, that's going to be a common theme throughout the series, uh, the fast bowlers of Australia bouncing out the England tail. And it's, it has a pretty debilitating and confidence sapping effects on, on teams when their their bowlers are being hammered and, and battered and bombarded by, by the opposition fast bowlers. So that's going to be a common theme. And, you know, it does show, I mean, one of the great strengths of the England team in recent years has been the strength of their tail, with Chris Wokes coming in at number nine. But, of course, without Ben Stokes, everybody's had to move up the order one place. And Wokes is eight. And then suddenly you've got three rabbits at nine, ten, and eleven. You have to say that Stuart Broad, even though he's made a test match century, is pretty much a rabbit these days because um, of the way he's been um, roughed up by fast bowling over the years. Do you think the Aussie bowlers have found a chink in Joe Root's armour? He seems to be getting caught on the crease LBW a little bit. Do you, do you think there's a problem there? Well, it's something he's got to address, isn't it? I mean, you're absolutely right. He was at LBW, pretty much a carbon copy dismissal in both innings. And, uh, you know, aiming across the line, uh, uh, after that first innings dismissal, he was walking back to the dressing room, sort of playing straight, you know, practicing a shot, saying, you know, why didn't I play straight? And, uh, you know, if you aim across the line, you are always going to be an LBW candidate. But, of course, Steve Smith has built an entire career aiming across the line, and he he, he rarely seems to miss the ball. And uh, even though you think he's going to be at LBW every over, he hardly ever is. Now, uh, Nathan Lyon had a really good test. Has he improved a lot since the last time you saw him in the, the last Ashes series? 
I think he's one of the one of the real sort of under underrated bowlers in world cricket, isn't he? People talk about the great spinners and they they look towards India, Ashwin, Jadeja, Ravi Chandran, Ashwin, that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, I think uh, Nathan Lyle's record, you know, puts him right up there. He's gone beyond Richie Benno, isn't it? I think only uh, Shane Warne is ahead of him in terms of wicket takers for spin you know, for Australian spin bowlers. And uh, you know, he gets overspin on the balls, he gets it to bounce, and. Uh, and he was particularly dangerous to the England left-handers. You know, they, they really struggled against him. England have got plenty of left-handers. And uh, there's no doubt that Nathan Lyon outbowled Moen Ali at the Gabba. Now, speaking of Moen Ali, one of the real turning points, I think, in this test match was when he was given out, stumped in the second innings for 40. He was looking really good. The run rate was starting to increase. The pressure was slowly starting to move towards the Aussies. Do you think he was unlucky to be given out stumps like that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think the decision itself was fair enough. I think you know, there, there wasn't any part of the boot that was, that was behind the line. But what was a little bit strange, wasn't it, that uh, was at the crease in the middle where Moen's foot was, had a bit of a bulge. It was a little bit wider in the middle than it was down the side. So if, if the, the line had been painted in a uniform manner, uh, the same width all the way across, then um, Moen would have been not out. So I think you can feel unlucky. You know, I think it's, it's sort of strange, isn't it, that we're, we live in a world now where there's DRS, there's spots, Snicko, all these gadgets and gizmos, high-tech stuff, and yet you know, a man can be dismissed because... The ground staff use a slightly thicker brush or put a bit more extra sort of paint and whitewash on the crease. It's a, it's a strange sort of quirk of this game, isn't it? Yes, yeah, certainly. All right, now looking ahead to the Adelaide test, England need to bounce back. Can you see them making any changes to the 11? Um, maybe, you know, bring in someone for ball or even Wokes? Probably not. I think they'll get another game. I mean... Um, Ideally, they'd find somebody who can bat a bit better at number nine. So Craig Overton is in the in the squad. He's a possibility. He bats a little bit better, but you know he he made three noughts in three innings in the warm up games, and it's difficult to think that he won't be blown away in the same way as as ball by the Australian quick bowler. So I, I think they'll probably stick with the with the same eleven as they had for for Brisbane. Uh, you know, clearly. Adelaide is England's best chance of winning a test in this series. Under lights with a pink ball, you know, it's likely to offer more lateral movement, which brings Anderson and Broad in particular into the game. And we have seen in the past that the Aussie batsmen aren't so comfortable when the ball is seeming around. So that's England's chance to get back into the series. You know, they've really got to win that test match in Adelaide. And if they don't, if they lose, then uh, I have an ominous uh, feeling about this tour. Yeah, it sounds that way. Well, John, thank you so much for your time on the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. As we record, this news is breaking that Ben Stokes is what heading to the Southern Hemisphere to visit family in New Zealand. I guess practically that means if he were to come into the squad at a later date, he would be um, you know much closer geographically. About four, I think Christchurch to Adelaide is about a four-hour flight, isn't it? Probably so. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh... I mean, it caused a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a firestorm on Twitter, being pictures of Stokes at uh, Heathrow Airport, and everyone was wondering, is he coming to the ashes? But you're right, he's going to Christchurch. His family are from uh, that city, you know, the, obviously the, the earthquake-ravaged city of, of Christchurch. He's been practicing indoors uh, at Durham most days. He's batting in his boulder. He's recovered from the, the, the broken bone in his hand. And uh, I think he's hoping to play a bit of cricket in New Zealand, maybe some club cricket or some domestic first-class cricket. You know, I think the situation, as far as the Ashes is concerned, remains unchanged. 
as it stands, there's virtually zero chance of him playing any part in the Ashes series. Yeah, and for him to be able to travel to Christchurch, does that mean something has been sorted out legally with the police in England for him to be able to leave the country, do you think? I mean, there's all kinds of rumours that he he has been cleared and that sort of stuff. But uh, I think it's just a condition of his release or by by the police. You know, there's no you know, there's no restrictions on him him being able to, to travel. You know. He won't disappear in Mexico and never come back. All right, John. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're heading to Adelaide and you've got a very busy schedule. So thank you so much. Enjoy the Adelaide Test. It is going to be lots of fun. I can tell you, day night That's cricket great. in Adelaide is fantastic. Take care. We'll catch up again. Well, great to hear from John there, and it will be interesting to hear how he holds up over this tour as England could perhaps limp from heavy defeat to heavy defeat. All right, now we're going to take a short break, but when we return, I'll be joined by former Test Fast Bowler Jeff Lawson. He played 46 tests for Australia, took 180 wickets. He was a part of the 1989 Victorious Ashes squad and is currently the New South Wales bowling coach. All right, quick break, and then I'll be back with Jeff Lawson. Lawson to Miller. And there's a very strong appeal, and that has to be out. Tony Crafter not in much doubt about that one. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled here to have one of the true legends of the game, ex-Australian fast bowler and now bowling coach for the New South Wales Blues, Jeff Lawson. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm terrific. It's great to be in the middle of cricket season being busy. Yeah, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. When I was growing up, you were captain of the New South Wales side. And you were you used to think a little bit outside the box tactically, just all all round the way you led the side. And I think one thing sort of typifies the way you did that was when you declared the New South Wales first innings at naught for naught. Now I don't know if you remember that that game, but oh, it's hard to forget that one. Yeah, <laughs> you want to talk us through because so it was a green top. You bowled first, you knocked over the opposition pretty cheap, and you thought, let's go back out there and bowl again. Is that what happened? Uh, well, it was a rain-interrupted game, which is what led to the declaration. And I think we'd had about a day and a half rain. It'd been, you know, on and off the field. But in the meantime, yeah, we, you know, Tasmania was struggling along. Lots of grass on the wicket because, the, I mean, I think it had rained almost the whole week coming into the game. Yeah, they were struggling long. I think, you know, they were about 7 for 140. And it was, I think it was about, must be nearly midway through day three. Or the start of day three. And, and there was nothing much happening in the game. And actually, well... Dave Gilbert was captain of Tasmania. So we had an ex-New South Walesman and a, and a fast bowler as, as captain of uh, the opposition. And I think he recognised if he bats past 150, which is the follow-on in four-day cricket, well, we'd have to bat. New South Wales would have to bat. It'd be no good declaring then at Nord for Nord because they'd just put you back in. So that would be just ridiculous. And I think they, they got 140... I think my seven might have been something. So short of the 150, and they were about seven wickets down. So we, we would have, probably would have bowled them out maybe, you know, 160, 170, and then we would have had to bat. There wasn't much time left in the game, so he declared. He did the right thing and declared and so, well, too. Well, if you declare straight away, they have to bat again. The only way we were going to get six points out of the game was if we got a chance to, to chase the score on the last day. And as it happened, we bowled them out for 100. So, no, perfect. I think, I think the unfortunate thing was you fell a bit short in the chase. Well, yeah, well, and, and, but I remember with the crowd on the Sunday with us chasing the runs. I mean, we, we, several thousand people turned up. It was a, end up, so it was a been a rainy week and then the, the sun came out on the Sunday and people wanted to watch the cricket. They turned up in big numbers and and we had a run chase, but the wicket was still doing everything. And I think Chris Matthews might have bowls out, who was a pretty handy bowler. So 
fell about 30 short or something like that. I can't remember. But I remember that was when the Shield Cricket used to make the back page of the papers. I mean, I remember naught for naught. I think it made the front page after <laughs> that game. But you look, it's, to me, it just seemed logical to do. I, I didn't see it as a great piece of genius thinking. I just thought that's the way we're going to win the game. And I look, and I must admit, uh, I got that a bit from there was a game in England uh, where a side declared. If not naught for naught, certainly naught for one or two. They faced one or two balls, you know, and in an English, in a county limited over competition, they ended up getting into trouble for it. They qualified for a final because their run rate stayed higher, even though they'd lost the game because they declared. And then after that, you're not allowed to declare in limited over cricket anyway, so they changed the rules. But I think that's what probably what was in the back of my mind. It happened while we're on a on an Ashes tour, so it might have happened in '85 or '89 that that it happened. And um, they, that gave me the idea. And then Dave Gilbert obviously was a big part of it. He wanted a result as well. And, yeah, all, all the numbers came up. And, you know, there are a lot of people at the, at the ground that day. Oh, thank you know, goodness you, you declared. Otherwise, we'd have a boring day's cricket. And, you know, we've all come out to watch. And they had, they had a pretty exciting day's cricket. It's, it's just that we, we ran second. It's been said that that sort of aggressive attitude filtered through to Australian cricket afterwards with your influence on, you know, Mark Taylor and the wars, you know, having them there at that time showing a willingness to go for a result and please the crowd just sort of flowed through into the way the Aussie team played after that. Well, well, mate, I mean, they were, they were quite aggressive thinkers themselves. You know, smart guys, good, great cricket brains. You know, not good cricket brains, great cricket brains. And it was always handy when I was captain to have those guys. You know, Mark Taylor at first slip, who caught everything and, you know, and quite a smart guy, you know, surveying degree from the University of New South Wales, which is the finest tertiary institution in the country. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then you, know, you know, usually Steve Ward, second slip, Mark Ward somewhere. So we had a lot of great cricket brains on the field. Obviously, that was when the test players actually played yeah, a lot did. of first-class cricket. And they did play a lot of first-class cricket. Then you, you didn't miss a, a, a Shield game because you just finished a test match. You, you played. So did the, you rest many games when you were... No, I didn't rest, rest any. You finished, I remember we are finishing a game... Finished a test match in uh, Perth. We had three days in the field. We made New Zealand follow on. Uh, we had three days straight. Mark in the, great batch in the batted head. it out. Yeah, we got dropped twice off me, but that's another another issue. A <laughs> couple of sitters. We should have won the game. We flew, got the midnight flight, got back, and we had to start a shield game in Newcastle the day after. So we got back in the morning, drove up to Newcastle and started the day after. That, that's pretty normal. But nowadays, they, yeah, they have two weeks off. So it, yeah, look, the game's changed, but... but we like to play all the time, which is why Shield players got to play against the Test players. And that's, that's very important. You've got, to, you've got to compete against the best if you want to get better. So, Jeff, you're talking about some of the great cricket minds going through the New South Wales system. At the moment, the Australian captain, obviously from New South Wales, you've probably seen him come through the ranks. After 57 tests, he's got more runs than anyone else. What do you think sort of sets him apart from some of the other players you've seen? It's hard to say because he's so different. You know, as a batsman, I suppose if you're if you're a coach or an analyst and you look you you want to answer that question, look at things outside. Well, he's got a different technique, and he holds the you know he really chokes the bat down, strong bottom hand. There's lots of things he does that aren't what the purists would think would make a good good batsman. So it's got to be how he thinks and and how quickly he sees the ball and what what decisions he makes. You know, when he's hitting the ball from outside off stump over backward square leg off a good length and, and you know shots like that that people you don't coach that. If you coach that, you wouldn't have a job coaching because people would say, that doesn't work. Probably changed, you know, if he'd come through, say, 20 years ago, he might not have even got this far. Well, you, you always like to think that no matter how different anybody is, if you're a batsman and you're making runs, I don't care how you make them. If you make them, you're in. You know, if you're a bowler, you can bowl left arm over your, your ear roll, you can bowl right arm slingers, and we've got people in international cricket who've done that. Well, if you get people out, you play. So you'd like to think... 
that in, in, ours, in the Australian system, maybe not in others, but in the Australian system, if you make runs, it doesn't matter how that you, you get to play. Uh, I think Steve Smith's probably benefited by the fact that he's played a lot of 2020 cricket, and we see players be quite inventive with what they do, and it's really unorthodox. Uh, and he's been a very successful 2020 player. But bottom line, he sees the ball early. Like all great players, you've got to see the ball early and make early decisions. And that doesn't matter how you hold the bat, what side of the bat you stand and what shots you play. If you don't see the ball early, and to me, that, that's a genetic thing. You can't train that. People can be, can be worse at it and you can make them slightly better. But if you haven't got the top level... You're not going to be, uh, you know, you're not going to be a super player. And Steve Smith's got quick decision making. He sees the ball early, and and he's unorthodox, and it, it's working unbelievably well. You know, you've had the whole Australian fast bowling stable uh, begin this preseason with you. All you know, an all Australian New South Wales attack. How do you think they're going to cope with the heavy workload of the summer? Yeah, look, first of all, it, it's great having you know Hazelwood come and stark around the group because a they're just they're just some of the nicest young men you'll ever meet. I mean, okay, they're fast bowlers and they you know they bowl bumpers and they do a bit of snarling on the field, but off the field, you know, we, we're talking about three just genuinely nice and they're quite young tight, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are, they're, they're, and they've been together a long time. A lot of them come, have come through the age groups together. I mean, Camo's a bit younger than than, than Starkey or, or Josh, just a little bit younger, but. They've been together. I mean, I can remember Josh Hazel in the indoor cricket centre at the SCG when he was about 15 in the you know the emerging Blues squad, and Mitchell Stark, you know, being in the next group that walked into the nets. So they've known each other for a long time. Um, they get on very, very well. They've all got a common goal. They all want to bowl fast. They want to play for Australia. They're very ambitious, as you have to be to play at the, at the top level because fast bowling's you know, it's hard work. Uh, yeah. They've all had their share of injuries. I mean, Camos is, is well documented but the other two have had you know the regular number of injuries that fast bowlers get and you've got to have the determination to fight your way back from those every time so what, what's nice right now is 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 it was, we talk about workloads is Pat Cummins has now got a lot of cricket behind him um, going through the pre-season with New South Wales he had the one day series overseas and he played a couple of test matches overseas he had a bit of a break back into the New South Wales side for the JLT Cup a couple of shield games and when you see him do his work, you say, okay, he's got a high workload at the moment, but he looks strong and he looks fit. So, look, I'm fairly confident that he'll get through the summer. Um, but, you know, yeah, do you cross your – you don't really cross your fingers. He need an all-rounder, though, to take a little bit of the workload off them. What is nice is to have an all-rounder. You don't need one. It's nice to have You've one. You've got one. Yeah. I mean, I've played in a lot of test matches. We just had four bowlers. You know, maybe a a would bowl a few part-timers, but he would only bowl, you know, if it was spinning a bit and there was some good reason. Not the rest of the bowlers. He wouldn't bowl for that reason. Um, you know, <laughs> God, going way back, Greg Chappell would bowl a few seam-ups and also a few leg breaks. I mean, I looked at a, a, a scorecard from the mid-'90s and it was McGrath, McDermott, Warren, May, and then the War Brothers. They had a perfect attack. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you got War Brothers mm-hmm. to bowl. Well, Junior bowls seam-ups. He keeps telling me famously he opened the bowling in a shield final at the SCG. Uh, then he, he took up some off breaks after that, and he had Stephen was uh, pretty close to the genuine all rounder. I mean, he he, mm. he he certainly bowled a lot of overs. Um, so it's always nice to have those guys, but it's, it's you know you go back beyond that. I mean, I don't think in the eighties when I played. Did we have, a, have an all-rounder in any of those test matches? I mean, Simon O'Donnell played a couple of those games, 85 Ashes. Um, oh, well, Greg Matthews, of course. I mean, he was a no, genuine all-rounder. Genuine. He's spin bowling and top-water player. I think he's and that, that, that often allowed you to play either another spinner or another bowler. So you had the five bowlers. Or if you thought you weren't batting very well, 
or you're playing the West Indies, you played another batsman, you know. Yeah. So it, it all, I guess it all depends, which is my mantra. With, 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 so it the all, players it all have got to be good enough to get in the side first with their batting, and if they can bowl, that's a bonus. Yeah, and, and we've talked about this summer, and, you know, Australia's batting. Who's going to bat six? You know, it ends up being Sean Marsh. Well, fine. Pick a pick a specialist bats. Pick the best guy to bat six because our batting isn't that strong. You know, Steve Smith's outstanding, of course. Um, you know, Peter Hanscom's he's still learning his game. He's got a long way to go. It's solid, but apart from that, we had a you know, there's a few question marks floating around. So you just saw Glenn Maxwell make what 278 over a sort of day and a half at North Sydney Oval. How did he bat? And does he look like a sort of more mature player than you know the last two years, perhaps? Well, well, certainly. I mean, great batting conditions. You know, very flat wicket, small ground. But I mean, he he, he batted. He didn't hit. He's, it wasn't his white ball stuff. It wasn't eclectic and frenetic. It, it was actually proper, proper batting. Innings, yeah. He played a couple of reverse sweeps when he was about two hundred and twenty. But but his ball striking and proper stroke play. You know, as we we call it proper cricket shots, don't we? But we mean proper cover drives and cuts and and shots through the onside, not. You know, glides over slips and I mean, ramps. He's a beautiful time when yeah. he's not yeah, trying yeah. to hit it too hard. And he timed it. He timed it gorgeously once again. Perfect batting conditions, but against a good attack. You know, some guys who who seriously good bowlers. Um, so yeah, it, and it, certainly if there's any failings in the Australian side, I think Glenn Max will be the guy to go up. And, and of course, he was on standby for Sean Marsh, so the selectors must feel he's next to go anyway. But, yeah, it was pretty impressive stuff. Well, they asked for big scores and he, he delivered with a big one. Um, now, talking about this all-New South Wales attack, they talk about the advantage England might have in the next test match with the pink ball. I know Stark really gets the pink ball to move. How do Cummins and Hazelwood go with the pink ball? Yeah, well, the talk, I mean, England won't have an advantage over Australia with the pink ball, but England would be more effective than they yeah. are at the moment. You know, English bowlers on our hard Australian wickets with kookaburra balls, that's one of our advantages. You know, it's not the Duke's ball in English conditions and English bowlers. That, that's why home teams win more. You know, we win on hard wickets with kookaburras. That, yeah. That's a part of the territory. Uh, but, but Adelaide has been quite grassy for pink ball test matches, and it certainly was for the first Shield game this year. We, New South Wales played South Australia with the pink ball game, and we had, uh, we had Starkey and uh, Camo playing. No, no Hazelwood in that one. Um, so they've, they've had some experience there recently. Stark gets the pink ball to swing more than the red ball. You've got to, it all depends. You put the, under, Underline that, it all depends. If you played at Adelaide, which they always do, they leave lots of grass on the wicket. So, so the ball doesn't uh, scratch up, it doesn't uh, wear away. And this pink coatings, it's different. It's different to a red ball. So often the new ball will swing a lot more. And if it does somehow, some of the pink coating peels off it, then you'll go reverse. And once it does that... You know, Stark's irresistible. And, he, and, and Anderson and Broad are, are wonderful bowlers, but Stark will be better than them under those conditions. Come in Stark, Hazelwood, with a pink ball, they're going to be better than they were in Brisbane. But so will Anderson and Broad. They'll be better than they were in Brisbane as well. Now, it just depends on which batting side gets enough runs to defend. But, yeah, more chance England can win in Adelaide because the ball will do more if they leave the grass on it. And I, and I think they will, but you, you don't know until you turn up. But... But Australia will be better as well. And the other thing is that, that Nathan Lyons played all those games in New South Wales, and he played the pink ball game in... How does you know, he go? Well, he went great. I mean, he turns it and bounces it, and he's, he's quite dynamic on that Adelaide Oval wicket with the pink ball. So once again, um, all four are bowling well. They bowl well in Brisbane, but they'll, they'll bowl pretty well in Adelaide. Now, I, I guess you played a lot of cricket with the current English coach, Trevor Bayliss. Um, do you feel for him a bit at the moment, having to look after this English side? 
Well, yeah, I mean, TB and I go back a long way when he was a... He's from Goulburn, I'm from Wagga. He's a young kid up in the, the New South Wales squad when he was playing for Penrith, and he did a great job. He would come into the New South Wales side when test players would go mm-hmm. out, and, and he would always play superb cricket. Uh, really dedicated player, student of the game. He, he got into coaching. He's come up through the ranks of the New South Wales age groups, coaching up into the New South Wales, did, did some work overseas. He's got a great CV mm-hmm. in coaching. And he's, he's a very level-headed, steady guy, which is helping him at the moment. Yeah. Because I'm sure... And he's done a great job with England. You know, they, they've been pretty successful with him. Obviously, they won the Ashes when he took over the job. So, and he, he coaches... Uh, it's all about being uh, even-tempered and not getting carried away with moments and, and backing your skill. But he's got the situation now also where his best player... Yeah, and for reasons outside cricket, it's not available. Any coach has got to have problems. But also, it. people are saying, is he strict enough with them? I mean, best though, head well, he, people. Well, and... well, yeah. I mean, I, put, I just dismiss the best <laughs> stuff as, you know, that's just, just that was Warner playing you know, silly buttons. Well, I mean, Bancroft saying, oh, we just had a bit. You know, it was nothing. Get on with it. And I agree. Let's, you know, this dude doesn't even mention. That's just blokes having a bit of fun, and Bancroft wasn't even concerned, and it becomes a story. So, end of story there. Uh, so, when your best player. Is not available, whether they're injured or for other reasons. It, it costs you big time. And England need Even him. Even in that last game? Yeah, massively. And before Stokes was ruled out, I thought this was going to be a very close series. But once he was out, I thought Australia have a significant advantage. I mean, a genuine all-rounder, uh, an absolute competitor, a quality player, can make test hundreds on Australian wickets, knows how to bowl on Australian wickets. You know, if, if he, for the scrap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They get in a corner. He'll be there fighting his way out of the corner. All that sort, all that sort of thing. You need to win, win a test match, let alone a test series in Australia. And to miss him puts hard work on the coach. Who are we going to replace him with? Just the attitude he brings in the dressing room. Just to, just to fight. You know, mm. if they, you know, can you imagine? We need hundred. We need to defend one hundred seventy. Come on, let's get. We can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, get out there. The give belief. me the ball. Yeah. Give me the ball. You know, get a couple of early wickets. Put some pressure on. All that sort of thing. So, you just don't miss the batting or bowling, but you miss what he does in the dressing room as well. I think Trevor Bayliss would be a good next coach of Australia. Could you see that happen? You know, when Lehman retires, contract well, ends. Well, I don't know if I'm letting any secrets out of the bag here, but TB did tell me uh, he might retire after he does the England job. Okay. Well, it would be lovely if we could get him back in New South Wales cricket. You know, because he, he loves coaching. He just loves the game. He has a busman's holiday. If, he's, if he wasn't, say, at New South Wales practice or the Sydney Sixers, he'd go out to Penrith practice where, where his son Adam was playing. He'd go to Penrith and, or he'd watch fourth grade or third grade in the afternoon of a Saturday afternoon. I mean, he just loves the game. So it'd be wonderful to have him back, you know, involved in our Locally, age groups. Yeah. But but that I think that'd be perfect for him. When we coach Australia, I look. I, don't, I can't really speak for TB, but but I, I couldn't see him wanting. I can't couldn't see him having the ambition to do it. I right, mean, right. he just he's he's not. Everyone's ambitious, I get, but he's not overly ambitious. He mm. understands what what he can do and what he enjoys, and he's lucky he can do it on his terms. He, you know, he's coached in the IPL. He's done very well there, and it's great to have a job where you can do it on your terms. Not you know going around looking for jobs all the time, which, which so many coaches in, in lots of sports do, and they have to do it because that's the nature of, of the beast. But yeah, like I, I don't know if TB would actually seek that sort of job to be the national coach. Well, very interesting stuff. Now we've got a very popular segment on the podcast called the commentary critique segment. Now you commentated on the ABC for a long time. Now, I heard that they basically just flicked you one day. Is that right? Yeah. Look, it's it's you know twenty two years of commentating all over the world, you know, everywhere from South Africa to, to India to Zimbabwe to, to Sri Lanka, wherever. I mean, I've, I've done 
test match, you know, the Sydney test match, 22 yeah. years in a row, all that sort of stuff. Even when I was coaching Pakistan, I got back. I love listening. I got back to coach. I got back to commentate. So all that's good. And, and I understand if people want to move on and they, you know, they, they think you're not relevant or whatever it is, well, fine, say so. But don't just put out a commentary roster that doesn't have your name on it and don't call you after 22 years. I mean, that's, that's pretty rude behaviour, isn't it? And I still haven't had a thank you. Just say, oh, thanks for your work. Uh, we're looking elsewhere. Not even a thank you from, from ABC management, but I guess that's where the ABC are headed at the moment. They, they don't really know where they're going in the, 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 their system, but uh, I mean... That's uh, disappointing, though, after, after oh, 20 yeah. years of service. Yeah, I mean, I'll, and I'm back into full-time coaching, which is, which is terrific. So uh, I'm, you know, I, I can't listen to the ABC. I think they're, it's pretty poor commentary at the moment. It's good to have Jim Maxwell back on calling it after his, his bit of an illness. So it's great to have him back on, but you know, it's really unlistable stuff. Same people, same voices, all the same age as their experts. You know, that's not covering the scope of people who listen to ABC cricket. And mm. cricket on the radio, I mean, you know, it still is the buzz of the summer. You know, if you're in your car going somewhere and the test match is on, or even one day you want to listen to cricket on the radio and you want to listen to proper cricket on the radio, I'm afraid at the moment I can't find myself tuning in. It just. Do you don't listen to one of the other networks? Yeah, I listen to one of the other networks. The so, but they, uh, one of the other networks, they're, they're good sometimes when, mm. you know, Kerry O'Kusan or yeah. those, those sort of guys. So, yeah, I, look, look, it is disappointing because... But I know so many other people who want to listen to it and, and they, they, they won't listen. ABC has really lost their way. I don't think they understand how important cricket on the radio is to particularly people in rural areas. Mm. You know, they, they don't want fluff and bubble. They, they want the cricket called for them, you know. They want expert opinions and great ball-by-ball guys. They want the atmosphere to come across. And I think the ABC, well, they've been accused of being, you know, metropolitan-centric and, and certainly we can see that in this policy. Yeah, I think I wrote something last week and I got a bit of a backlash from ABC fans. I think they're a little bit better this year because they've got Agnew, Alison Mitchell and Jim Maxwell back. So they sort of, I don't know, dilute the rest of it. I always thought one of your great strengths as a commentator was that you used to just speak normally and naturally. There was no put on. It was just a conversation between you and the, the caller. And, and do you have any other tips for commentators? Well, I think that is, is a definite way you've got to go. It takes a while to learn that. I must admit, when I started, I mean, Alan Marks was one of our producers and, and they used to you know, actually coach you how to do it, which is terrific. I don't think they do it now. You know, they just throw people in front of a microphone and say, talk. But he made me listen back to some of my stuff and go, oh, God, I can't. Oh, that is that is dreadful. <laughs> I can't listen to that. But he used to give me some tips about you know, how to go about you know, your tone of voice. It, you know, he, he said it's a conversation. It's not just a conversation with the ball-by-ball caller, but it's a conversation with the audience. Yeah. You know? He said, look, you play cricket. You know what's going on out there. Just talk about it like you're talking to your mates. So you you know you talk about the field placements and you know who's bowling, where the wind's blowing from, and and it's good to have some historical knowledge. You've got to know what's going on. You've got to do your homework for every game. And then when you get to work with someone like Jim Maxwell, who's just a genius. I mean, people. I don't know if people really understand how good he is as a commentator to do hundreds of Test matches, thousands and thousands of hours, but every ball is fresh. That that is an astonishing ability to do that, and and he knows how to deal with the, uh, with the expert commentators, how to bring them in, mm. when to stop and let them talk, uh, all that. And I don't think some people at ABC just don't get that at the moment. They they try to you know sort of um, interview the the experts. They don't they don't get it. But uh, as you said, it's great to have Jimmy back on there and, and Agus. At least we've got a bit more of a feeling of an Ashes series. Do you miss commentary? I, at times I do. Yeah. What what I do enjoy is is a hell of a lot is, is coaching and dealing with young people and dealing with. 
come and start Hazelwood line the next Smith, you know the, yeah and the next next line of fast bowls we got through. even you know Dougie Bolland just it's just great working with the, with the veteran who's still doing well and some of our young players coming through that, like, I really enjoy there's a lot of satisfaction in in dealing with those sort of guys so that's different mm. but yeah yeah I, it's nice to get behind a microphone every now and then and, and watch a game, sit there, enjoy the game and, and talk about it. Now I, I sit there and I watch it and analyse it as a coach and you, you get in, you know you get involved in it and you live every ball and I've had too much of that in the past. I'd like to sit back and enjoy again. Yeah, relax. All right, well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Uh, just before we go, I want to take stroll back into memory, memory lane a little. When I was a young man growing up, I had a, a poster on my wall from the 1989 Ashes Tours. And one of the things about that tour was only six players played it. Oh, sorry, only 12 players played yeah, in the six indeed, tests. Yeah. Greg Campbell, I think, played the first. And then Hones came in and you played in all six tests of the 89 Ashes. 4-0 win for Australia. We held the Ashes then all the way until 2005. What, what's a memory that stands out from that tour? Well, it was a great summer in England, wasn't it? The weather was great. We played. We were the underdogs when we arrived. Ticket tape parade when uh, you came yeah, back. Yeah, look, I think that's a bit of a bit of overkill, personally. I mean, you know, that surprised me a lot. Um, it was the first time since the thirties. So. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, okay, great for the fans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can't. We, you know, the fans are what make the game. The, the whole tour is a highlight. I mean, was it seventy at Lords? Was that? Yeah, it got seventy at Lords. That was kind of nice, you know. Especially as Merv got out last ball before lunch, I had to go and bat for a couple of minutes, and he was gutsing his face with with lunch when I got back. <laughs> Are you and Merv good mates? Oh yeah, well, very very close, very close. I, I never, I try not to drink with him because he drinks too much. But I heard nah, he called yeah. you when he passed you on the oh, test yeah. wickets to say, "I've just slipped past you now, mate." Oh yeah, plus wickets and runs as well. Well, wherever it is, and usually when we meet, I mean, it's you know a few times a year around the place. He says. Uh, so, uh, how many players have got uh, a thousand runs and two hundred wickets for Australia? Because he was like the fifth player to get a two hundred. You know, like, I'm, you know, a bit short. Oh yeah, thanks, mate. You know, that's how we greet. It's not hello, how are you going? No, nah, he's good. He's, he's terrific value, Mervyn. But and, and he was great on that Ashes tour. Uh, individual. I mean, obviously, uh, to me, Bernie sweeping the winning runs at, at Old Trafford for the Ashes to return. Famous know. image. Oh, you know, arms aloft. And us on the balcony, there's a great photo of the team on the balcony, everyone sort of rising as, as well. A lot of hard work went into it. And, you know, I'd played in a few losing action series as well. So it was, it was terrific to be. And I'm just thinking about it now and getting a bit goosebumpy. Yeah. You know, it was, was a... Was a great moment. It was a tough time before the '89 Ashes, and that sort of opened the floodgates. Yeah, and I'd come off, you know, a back injury that, that you know may have finished my career, I may have never walked again, let alone played again. Wow. So to be back, I was, you know, man of the match in that Test match. I'll just throw that one. Good <laughs> one. The one we won the Ashes back. So yeah, great series by everybody. You know, everyone played well. As you said, we only played twelve players, and and each one of those made a made a significant contribution. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really fascinating and um, enjoy the rest of the summer and good luck with New South Wales. Thank you very much. You're listening to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, and great stuff there from Jeff Lawson. Now I wanted to remind all the listeners of a giveaway we've got for the Ashes PlayStation 4 game that's just been released. Now, it's a really good video game. I actually won the World T20 Championship a couple of days ago, which I was thrilled about. So for your chance to do the same, please email in your favourite Steve War Ashes memory to Oz Cricket Pod. that's A-U-S, cricketpod at gmail.com 
email in your favorite Ashes memory and then next week I'm going to draw out the winner and as I said if you were too young to see any of Steve Ward's Ashes stuff send in your most recent favorite Ashes memory and that'll go into the draw. Also, I want to remind you that during the upcoming Adelaide Test, the best place to stay up to date with all the action on the cricket is at dailytelegraph.com.au. You've also got the Adelaide Advertiser and the Courier Mail in Brisbane and Adelaide. So all the action is going to be there. Blogs, uh, podcasts, videos. So you can keep up to date with the action there. All right. And now to end the show this week, we are lucky enough to be joined by the sports columnist and cricket writer from the Courier Mail in Brisbane, who's just seen the whole Gabba test. He's going to help me reflect on it and then look forward to the Adelaide test. So I have on the line Mike Coleman. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Andrew. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks for coming on the podcast for the first time. Great to have you on. How did you enjoy the test at the Gabba? Yeah, I thought it was it was a good test. It was um, there was a bit of fun there uh, with, with the um, the sledging and and the headbutt. Uh, alleged headbutt incident. Very funny press conference after it all. But down on the field, a, a, a very you know one of those tests that sort of goes backwards and forwards. That in the end, it was pretty one-sided to Australia. But that wasn't really the way it was over the uh, over the four and a bit days. You know, if not for Steve Smith saving Australia at one time, uh, we could have been in a bit of trouble. England, you know, they 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 battled well. I I don't think they're really going to give Australia much of a, a struggle over the over the entire series. But um, as first tests go, it was pretty engrossing, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought right up to sort of even around lunch on the fourth day, the match sort of hung in the balance. But then it turned out to be a very heavy defeat for England in the end and really must have knocked their confidence around that they couldn't get a wicket in that fourth innings in Australia. You know, won by 10 wickets and coasted to victory in the end. It must have really knocked their psyche around. Well, I think so because a number of things would have done that. One is that Steve Smith produced on his... um, on Australian ground and there's a psychological problem that the Englishmen have with Smith it's a it's a similar thing to when Don Bradman was playing against England I think um you know that's the first Bradman Smith comparison good one (laughs) okay I think that they have that problem you know they they think about it a lot you know we've got to get smith out and what's going to happen if we don't and and uh so that happened down the other thing that happened that they've got the mitchell johnson thing hanging over them you know an australian quick on the australian grounds smith played well and the australian fast bowlers played well too so you've got smith on on australian grounds and now you've got a good uh three-prong australian quick attack who really played well, Hazelwood, Stark and coming. And, um, you know, that that really would make them think, oh, gee. And their two strike bowlers didn't really worry Australia. I mean, they, they toiled very well, but they're not the same type of fast bowlers as, as Australia's got. They're, they're very potent on English pitches in, in England, uh, English conditions where they can swing the ball. But... But here on a, a flint-hard Australian pitch, um, they're in a bit of trouble. And even, you know, if, if England had come out in that fourth innings and had Australia, you know, five or six down and knocked a few of our top, or, top order over, they could have sort of taken that into the next test. But in the end, they just didn't look like getting a breakthrough. Do you think 5-0 is on the cards again for England? 
Oh, definitely. But I think that um, the one where they they might have a, a bit of a chance is Adelaide because it's just different. You know, it's it's a day night test. It's the pink ball. It's not a, a traditional test match, but certainly the Boxing Day test, Sydney and also uh, Perth, they're, they're going to be in all sorts. The, the only one I think where you would think that they could do something might be might be Adelaide. I mean, stranger things have happened. I mean, it is ten, test cricket, but just from what we've seen in Brisbane, they just don't have the, the armour. You know, they've, they've got Root. If Root plays well, they're a chance. To, to get some runs. Also, Cook, I mean, you, you wouldn't back Cook to miss out twice in every test. He, he, he's a class act. There's no doubt about it. But these guys don't like coming to Australia. They're, they're sensational in England, but they come out here and whether it's um, a physical thing or a psychological thing, they, they don't like it. And they haven't got, at this stage, they haven't got Stokes, who is a superb all-rounder. So they're, they're really up against it. Yeah, I think something that the English can take out of the Gabba is that most of their batsmen, apart from Cook, got a start in either of the innings. So they've got some form about them, but it's, you know, it's, it's the old adage, you've got to put it all together at the same time. You do, and you have to do it the right way. I mean, people were saying, you know, wasn't it great to see the, the two no-name, you know, Stoneman and, um, and Vince, but the way they scored that, that's not really going to help help them, you know. I mean, you've got to get some runs in some sort of time to to set it up for your for your bowlers. And if they're going to scratch around like that and just try and survive, you, you've got to have someone who who can take a an attack apart. And they they didn't do that. They they survived and and got some runs doing it, but they didn't really impose themselves at any time, did they? No, and you know, the way they got out in the end was was pretty bad, <laughs> pretty soft dismissals. One of them needed to go on and score a big hundred, and that would have set the game up for England. Well, it's all coming back to Root at, at the at the moment. You know, if, if Root doesn't get one twenty, one forty, they're in all sorts of strife. Whereas the Australians have just got um, they've got a very very good balanced side. They've got great fast bowlers. They've got Lyon is is spinning it well. For England, Ali's a good player. There's no doubt about that. He's a good player with the ball and the bat, but he doesn't give the ball the air that Lyon does. He doesn't get it up up there spinning. And on Australian pitches, that's that's a worry. You know, I I just don't think if you're if you're putting Australia's eleven against England's eleven, Australia should win every time. Confidence. There's balance there. There's as you say, there's confidence and there's, I mean, we've got. Two really good openers who look like they can um, they can they can start getting a, a combination together and a partnership. They obviously get along well. I mean, we saw Cameron Bancroft is is a guy we, we saw him in the press conference yesterday. He's, he's an easy guy to like, and I think they're really taking to him in, in the Australian dressing room. And he, he's a bit of a different character, but but so is is David Warner. So if he and Warner can really click as players on and off the field and, and as a combination on and off the field, that that's good. There's a bit of a worry with Usman Khawaja. He he didn't look good. You know, he didn't get the runs that, that he would have been hoping to get on his home track. But that's not an issue at this stage. I mean if you're if you're winning tests by ten wickets, you, you really can't find too much fault in a side. And this side has been picked for two tests. So he's 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 got another crack at it. I reckon, though, when Usman Khawaja comes out to bat from now on, Moeen Ali will be straight 
on to bowl. And I think Moe Nelly's straight one is what gets Kawaja. And now you're based in Queensland. You would have seen a lot of Usman Kawaja over the last couple of years. Can you see any way he can get out of this rut against spin bowling? I mean, we all know that, that he is a, a very capable test batsman. And, and so what he needs is time, whether he gets that time, because we've got some depth going now at the moment in Australia with, with the batsmen, haven't we? Or the batters, as they're called now. You yeah, can't Maxie call them puts some pressure on with that big 200. So, you know, you wouldn't want to yep. be uh, not scoring runs for too long. Well, that, that's exactly right. And, and also Mitchell Marsh. He's back bowling again, Mitch Marsh. So he bowled in the Shield game, I think, yesterday. And he was told, you know, he wasn't ready to bowl. But he said, you know what? I feel ready. I'm going to bowl. And as this summer goes on, the, the thought of having someone in that lineup that can bowl a few medium paces will become more enticing for the selectors. No question. And that puts pressure on, on Sean Marsh. And, um, and, and really... And Usman as well, yeah, of course. Now, let's let's look at these three players that were brought into the Aussie side for this test. You talked about the Bancroft-Warner partnership. You know, if they could, as you say, form a bromance, much like Hayden and Langer did, that could go a long way to stabilising the top order. I thought Bancroft, in the second innings in particular, looked very confident and assured at the crease and had the ability to get off strike probably a little bit more effectively than, say, Matt Renshaw. What do you think? Yeah, well, that's that's the way it looked. And also, I think the key there is Warner. Warner is such a, a good player and so important to... Australia's chances in a test match. And Bancroft just needs to stay with him. Well, but also he, he's got to be happy. Warner's got to be happy with who he's with. Mm. And, and he's, you talk about the bromance, that, that's, that's so important. I think we're, you know, it's, it's very early days. We're talking about two innings, but, um, you know, the signs are, are definitely good there. Yeah, now another player that came back in amid much contra- controversy is Sean Marsh. I thought he played a very crucial innings of 51 and stuck with Steve Smith. But in the end, a soft dismissal just popped it up to mid-off. Didn't go on with it and get the big score. So, I mean, he still really needs to get, make a big score in the rest of the series. Absolutely. Um, it's He's just one of those players, isn't he? The selectors love him. The other players love him. You see him. He's a stylish player and he, he looks so good when he looks good. And then just when he's ready to go on and make that, that big, big score that everyone wants him to make and everyone needs him to, to make, he doesn't do it. And as you said before, he, he's under huge pressure from, from other people who are Including scoring his brother. big big runs well his brother i mean if you wouldn't want to be um i, I mean i suppose the wars went through it didn't they i mean could be one of those Steve things was replaced by mark war you know where they tell each other at family dinner yeah yeah well it'd be a bit rough a bit awkward christmas, i guess swampy stick time. in there and sort it out yeah. being an ex-test player and um, what about tim payne looked great with the gloves didn't do much with the bat but that stumping of mowing alley some good catching behind the stump, so a short gloveman, but I just wonder whether his fitness can stand up to the rigours of a five-test series. I mean, he thinks, thinks it will. He did look pretty good, apart from that drop ball, but I think the problem there was, you know, his gloves are very new. He hadn't worn them before this the test, had worn any gloves. Because he's not playing first-class um, cricket. No, no, and, and, you know, there was some talk that he'd bought those gloves on the morning before the game, and he'd forgotten to... Um, cut that plastic tie that holds them both together. So, um, I mean, he'll, he'll get over that as, as the series goes on. 
Yeah, look, as I said before, you know, when you win by, you know, 10 wickets, you'd be pretty churlish to try and find things that are wrong with the side. Come on, mate. That's what we do on podcasts. We find things to criticise. Oh, okay. Fair enough. (laughs) No one wants to hear good news. Worst selection of all time. (laughs) All right. Now I want to throw a few things at you that are a little bit away from the Ashes on field action. A few quick questions. There are fears that the Gabba next year could be stripped of a test match. India are coming out for four test matches. A couple of the major grounds are going to miss out. Do you think the Gabba deserves to miss the match? Yes, I do. Look, the, the Gabba... If you haven't been there, if you've watched it on TV and you've never been to the Gabba, you think it's great. You know, it's it's a good pitch. Visitors hate going there. Australia loves playing there. The, the TV makes it look fantastic. The fact is the Gabba sucks. The Gabba is... Now, James Anderson said this week it's it's number five. It's it's rated number five in the country. Well, that, that's James just a Sutherland. nice way of saying... Oh, James Sutherland, sorry. Who did I say? James, James Anderson. He probably doesn't like it either. James Anderson doesn't like it at all. He, he thinks it's number six. No, James Sutherland said it's number five. Now, that's a nice way of saying it's the worst in Australia. And it is in terms of amenity for the patrons. It is impossible to get in and out of. There's no public transport. There's never enough cabs. They've got a thing called the Gabba traffic uh, zone or whatever it is around the ground. There's 15-minute parking around the ground well, sorry. I mean, if you want to have a world-class venue, you've got to be able to get these 40,000 people in and out. If you don't provide buses, you don't provide trains, there's not enough cabs, there's no cab rank at the Gabba. I mean, it is inside, it's probably era 2007. Outside, it's 1896. Now, even 2007 isn't good enough. I mean, when you look at what they've done in Perth and in Adelaide, you look at the MCG. The MCG, now I've been there for AFL Grand Finals. I've been there for Test Matches. I've I've been there for the Commonwealth Games. There have been 100,000 people. And at full closing time, 100,000 people walk out of the doors of the MCG and they disappear. It's like magic. It's like they walk, start walking through a park and they just sink below the surface of the ground. And somehow they wake up at home. Like they, they, they can walk into the city. They can, there's trains, there's buses, there's, there's, they can go on the river, what, whatever. The Gabba, you're just stranded on a, on a desert island of, of, of crappy old houses and, and main roads. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And if you want, as I say, if you want to put on world-class events, you've got to have a world-class venue. And, and look, I've, I've been to some of the best venues in the world. And sometimes getting in and out of there is part of the excitement. It's part of the fun. Everyone, if you catch you catch a train to, to Twickenham or you the catch a train to Lords, and and thousands of people, you know, walking there past beautiful pubs and 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 people serving food in their front lawns, you know, if you want if you're world class events, you've got to have a world class venue. So your assessment is they have to fix it up or they shouldn't have the test next summer. There has been one hit though at the Gabba, and it made its Ashes debut this year. The pool deck is a big hit at the Gabba. It's one of the things that's taken off. Uh, do you like the pool, though? Do, do I like the, the pool? Yeah. Do you think so, it adds to the atmosphere? Yeah, it adds to the atmosphere. But, I mean, it's it's not 
it's not going to make it a world class venue, is it? I mean, it's 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 very Queensland. It's very um, it's very yobbo. It's it's fun and it's funny and it it, but it's it's window dressing. You know, would you rather? be the ground where you have um, you know great parking great Wi-Fi connection great um, seats uh, cheap food you know food or, or and with a great precinct around it or would you do you want to be the one with the drop-in swimming pool <laughs> now um, Chris Lynn was seen down at that pool having a good time is he a bit of a party boy what's the rumor up there does Lynn like to go out and have a good time well, I've, I haven't gone out and had a beer with him, but uh, yeah, I'm sure he, uh, he that that is the the word. You know, he's he's seen around and about a bit, but as long as he good keeps hitting those um, big sixes for the heat, that's that's good. Yeah, good on no him. No dramas like there, and he hasn't hasn't headbutted anyone. Yeah, no, he hasn't gotten in a fight. No, he doesn't sort of greet people by putting his <laughs> forehead into their face. Um, so he's like, a big star. Um, some people. Yeah, now he's a big star for the Brisbane Heat. How much has the Brisbane Heat captured the hearts of the local Brisbaneites and Queenslanders? I was up there for a game last year and there was real excitement and buzz around the the big the Brisbane Heat and you know massive crowd in there. Yeah, so how much of it sort of has it captured the imagination and hearts of the locals? Huge. It's it's really huge. They, they, they love it. They particularly like Lynn, you know, like um I had my my son who would never usually go to a cricket match. He and a mate, you know, went went out there just to see Chris Lynn play. I think he got out for two, but they had a fantastic time. And it, it, there's a real party atmosphere. I think the the swimming pool type atmosphere is more suited to to the Big Bash. And um, honestly, it, it it has really taken off. It's really captured the imagination here. I don't know what it's like in other states, but it is big here. And- no, don't. Uh, you can't underestimate how big it is. That's fantastic. Do you think it would be a good thing to expand the Big Bash? So, I mean, they've gone an extra game or an extra two games this year. Do you think they should maybe look at even going further than that? Well, you, you don't want to overplay it, really. I, I think it, it's probably at its time here in, in Brisbane, it, it's the only show in town. So you can sort of expand it a bit, I, I guess. But as I say, you don't want to kill the uh, the goose that laid the golden egg. I, I wouldn't want to overplay it. I, I think it's pretty good as it is. Maybe in another one or two games, but um, at, at the Gabba. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I really appreciate your time. Just uh, looking ahead to Adelaide, what are you tipping, an Aussie or an English victory? I think uh, an Aussie victory. I think it, it'll probably be not as much a walkover as some people are thinking just because it's a bit different it's not what the Australians are used to and the English might be able to improve their performance but I still think Australia will get away with it and it'll be 5-0. All right very confident stuff Mark really appreciate you, you heard it. it you heard it here first but if it's not I don't want to hear from you again okay. All right no worries Mike take care we'll catch up again over summer. Oh, that's it for Cricket Unfiltered this week. Thanks so much to John Etheridge, Jeff Lawson and Mike Coleman. Remember, rate, review and subscribe to the show and whatever podcast app you listen to podcasts on. You can follow me on Twitter at OzCricketPod or at Amenas and enjoy the Adelaide Test. We'll be back daily with our match reports. <laughs>